I actually came to this point where I realized that I had never, ever done something where I didn't know what the outcome would be. That actually freaked me out more than anything else. And my favorite quote is, if you want something that you've never had, you have to do something that you've never done. You know, we never know what's on the other side of our comfort zone, on our familiar. And so only when we choose to go beyond it, does the world become that little bit deeper and a bit you know, I guess more exciting. And even if it doesn't work out, you know, even if what happens on that unknown space isn't where you actually want to land or stay in, Mm. you're always more richer for that experience. Mm. And I think sometimes the hardest decision is to slow down the trajectory of where everyone else, the pace of everyone else and go, I'm going to take a pause and I'm going to do something different Mm. and I can jump back on and the wheels can keep turning and it's going to be okay. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Holloway, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. As promised last week, this week's guest is the beautiful second half of the greatest power couple going around. Hearing Mark's incredible story, you'd be forgiven for thinking it'd be impossible to find a worthy match for him, but my dear Samantha Gash is just that and more. After we met each other through mutual obnoxious eagerness in our first year of law studies, we've had a beautiful and enduring relationship for over a decade, seeing each other through many different adventures, phases and even careers. She may be small in stature, but she's a big personality and even bigger inspiration to myself and many hundreds and thousands of others who her story has touched and it's no surprise that our chat goes well over an hour, maybe even closer to two, so buckle in guys, it's a goodie. Having united her early passion in a performing arts and law degree, Sammy's love for the extracurricular has been around a long time, seeing her work in Texas on capital cases on death row, in Indigenous communities around Australia and everything in between. Sport was admittedly never her strong point, and yet in the first display of what has become a characteristic love for discomfort and challenge, Sam randomly undertook the 100km Oxfam challenge in our uni days and has never looked back. From there, she has continued to defy even our wildest imaginations, leaving law to pursue her career as an elite ultramarathon runner and incredible public speaker, starting by becoming the youngest person and first female to complete the Four Deserts Grand Slam series. That's four 250-kilometre races across the hottest, windiest, coolest and driest deserts in the world. If that weren't enough, she then ran 1,968 kilometres across South Africa, followed by 3,253 kilometres across India, both to raise awareness and funds for causes close to her heart. Nick and I have been so lucky to be part of her crew on a few different adventures, as you'll hear, and she continues to open my mind every day. I could bang on forever, but I'll let her tell you the rest. Hope you enjoy and are seizing your yay. Sammy. I'm so excited to finally have you on the show. It's 
horrifying that it was such a process for us to even sit down to do this. <laughs> I know. No, that it was such a process for us to even get onto each other to make a time to actually sit down and do this. <laughs> I, I, you know how I always say that you know, the close people in your life, they always know that you're there for them. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I think that's almost taken for granted a little bit mm-hmm. because you know that you're always there that if you are at capacity, you let that drop sometimes because you know they'll forgive you. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. But it's a sign that we have such an exciting life going on. So it's not the worst. I mean, you know, we work around it. You know, I was holding off on asking you for something for so long because I wanted to do it on the podcast. I was, oh, yeah. <laughs> so to give context, I wanted Sarah to be the bridesmaid at my wedding <laughs> And I had asked my other two bridesmaids, all in a way that reflected my relationship with them. And I thought, oh, what beautiful way Sarah and I can have a conversation about our lives and our relationship. And then I'll ask her if she wants to be my bridesmaid. And then it just got way too long. (laughs) Where every time I saw you, I felt incredibly uncomfortable that I hadn't asked you. And you're like, how are your wedding plans going? And I'm like, yep, great. Haven't done anything yet. Done nothing. Haven't asked anyone any questions or anything about anything. (laughs) Then I had to drop it way earlier and ask you. So as a little intro, obviously, to today's guest, we are each other's bridesmaids. We have a very long history. It is so exciting to be sitting here talking and even just taking a second to like reflect on where we were when we first met each other and where we are now and all the stuff that's happened in between. But very first question, which I forgot to ask in the back-to-back episode that I just recorded with your fiance before this, I forgot to ask, what is the most down-to-earth thing about you? I think my nighttime attire. <laughs> I can look at Paint Mark. us a picture. It's uh, the picture is not sexy. <laughs> so I live up in the Dandenong Ranges, and it, it's very cold. And I am I'm I'm very cold. Um, my circulation's terrible. <laughs> I really need a lot of layers to get warm. So typically at nighttime, I'll have um, mismatched like pyjama bottoms and top. (laughs) Sometimes I'll go so far as to wear a flannelette shirt with some, you know, tracksuit pants with my Ugg boots over the top with a pair of like woolen socks in between (laughs) Um, and then sometimes an oversized hoodie. So I think... Yeah. I, it's a glamorous it's life a, up here in the Dandenongs. <laughs> You're lucky that I'm wearing jeans for you today. <laughs> <laughs> it's a special occasion is, today. <laughs> I, I was going to say that I did my hair for you, but I didn't. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, Sam and I have seen each other probably at our worst, I think, yeah. like three weeks deep without showers in the middle of the Himalayas. Like we've been – we've seen stuff, you know. We don't need to dress up for each other anymore. No. And I, but I think that's nice. I mean, is that our worst or is that our rawest? Yeah. Um, you can flip anything to make it sound good. <laughs> yeah. All right. So first section, way TA. You, like many of our other guests, have an incredibly diverse and exciting pathway to get to where you are today. And some of that that we share in common, you've been a big inspiration to me always. So take us back to the very beginning. So before Sam and I actually met, tell everyone how we met, Sam. We were being obnoxious together. Oh, we were. (laughs) One of our favourite pastimes. Okay, so we were in a law tutorial. And um, for those who haven't had to suffer through a law degree, you obviously have the lectures that you um, can 
go to in person, but you can also listen to online. But you have mandatory attendance to 80% of your tutorials <laughs> uh, where you have, you know, you're given questions to do in advance and then you kind of explore them together in a small group. There's actually very little room to hide because oh, you might yeah. have six to eight people in the room. Tiny rooms as well. But Sarah and I did not want to hide. <laughs> we were always, um, we didn't know each other, but we were probably the two people in the room who always had completed every single question for that tutorial and were quite excited to share our <laughs> answers to each of those questions. I think people enjoyed being in our class because they could then hide. Yeah, um, we just had our hands up all the time. Yeah, keen beans. <laughs> <laughs> and do you know what? Some people would find that competitive, but I was just like, oh. She's one of my tribe. Yeah. I was like, I want to be friends with I that girl. I want to be friends with her. We can study together. <laughs> Which is actually what happened. Which is exactly what we did. I have some very fond memories of um, being in bed with you, <laughs> studying for contract law exams and your mum making us cups of tea oh and bringing gosh. them into the bed whilst we were studying with our <laughs> colour coordinated notes <laughs> and that we were drilling each other with questions. Oh, I actually think back to that. And it's really nice. It's actually really nice to think that, you know, in a really short time you can have a relationship that's, I mean, somewhat professional, you mm -hmm. know, academic, and then it can be broken down to like sitting in each other's like home personal space. Yeah. Yeah. with your family connected to that and you know the law environment is incredibly competitive mm. you, you know you feel it from the very early years of your degree that mm. as soon as kind of clerkship applications start and applying for actual jobs in law firms you realize that you can some people feel that they're competing against every single other person mm. for the very few coveted jobs at top tier law firms and we have never felt that with each other <laughs> and I think that's we colluded we colluded you know and I just it's, I, lovely. I, it, it's good I think you know more relationships should be like that yeah totally so take us back to pre our relationship mm. hard to imagine you had a life before that <laughs> tell us about young Sam so were you cool at school what did you think you'd be mm. Sam actually did performing arts law so did you think that you would be more of a performer and do the arts or did you think you'd be a lawyer you know what what were you like as a child what was your upbringing like so I grew up in uh, country Victoria. I grew mm -hmm. up in Bendigo and then moved quite shortly to Ballarat, which is even more chilly than the Dandenong Ranges. <laughs> and I, I think m my parents are quite academic and particularly my dad. And so, you know, I grew up thinking that everyone, you know, went to university, mm -hmm. um, which makes me seem quite sheltered. But I just thought that that's the trajectory you had. You know, you, you tried your best to do, you know, achieve the best possible results um, in high school, do some kind of degree. Um, my dad was an engineer, so I think I thought in the early days that I would just follow in his footsteps. Um, you, you model yourself often off what you see. Mm -hmm. um, but then I kind of got into primary school years and I just very much remember the teacher one day asking us, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it was the first time where I was like, maybe I don't want to be an engineer. <laughs> and okay. I was like, I was like, maybe I want to be a um, like one part of my brain was like, I want to be a lawyer, and then the other part of me was like, I want to be an actress. <laughs> and I very much liked Home and Away <laughs> when I was young. Fancied yourself a Home and Away actress. Well, I did. It, when I thought of acting, I was thinking Home and Away. <laughs> and I remember writing down a piece of paper, you know, I want to be a lawyer, I want to be an actress. And I kept like crossing each of them out. 
And by the time my turn got to say what I wanted to be, all the girls before me had said that they wanted to be an air hostess. And so I was like (laughs) holding this piece of paper ready to kind of express my deliberation between being an actress and a lawyer. And then I just wrote, said, air hostess which I um, got responses of laughter because I was very, very short back then and everyone's like, you'll be too short to be an air hostess. And then for some reason, even though I didn't want to be an air hostess, I was like really upset by that. (laughs) (laughs) So so funny what sticks with you. Yeah, I I remember exactly where I was in that moment. So, But it was true. Like I held on to the two ideas of lawyer and actress for a long time. You know, I think I always wanted to give myself maximum opportunity Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to shut any doors. Yeah. And so for me, I saw you know, aiming for a law degree and maybe practicing law as something that would set me up to either pursue it in the long term and, and maybe take it to what that nth degree might be, which could be a partner at a law firm. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I think the idealistic side of me was thinking a lawyer for the UN, go to New York or go, you know, and actually work in um, conflict zones with humanitarian law. One of our friends of which has actually done that. Mm. <laughs> I know. And then when you see someone actually living that and, you know, there are often these careers that you place as like, they're idealistic because you really want to do it, but you also think that it's so hard to attain. And unless you do some certain steps early on, it makes that achievement for that even harder and harder. Mm. And in the early days, I just didn't do the right things to even position myself into that space. Mm. And it was almost like I became a corporate lawyer as a default from the fact that I didn't put in the the hard work earlier on. And then maybe I just didn't want it enough to then play catch up later on. Mm. So interesting, isn't it? Mm. So what about at high school? Like as you, you know, you decided that you wanted to kind of get into performing arts law to keep things broad. But in terms of your other interests, it's interesting to me that your running career started so late in life. <laughs> at that stage, were you also athletic? Were you running at all? You were at St. Margaret's. Mm. Were you school captain? I think you were school captain. No, no, I, I was, um, what was I? I was house captain, mainly because I spent a lot of time practicing my you know, speech to be captain to the year. And I, I, you know, sometimes when you do put the hard yards in and you be creative, it sticks in people's minds. Um, so I think I I was voted because people are like, okay, she's a very keen bean. She wants it so badly. We, we remember her. <laughs> um, I campaigned hard. <laughs> and I was also debating captain and Sopranos leader, which of makes it seem, you, <laughs> you know, makes it seem like I really covered the spectrum, but there was only 49 in my year level. So there was always going to be a couple of leadership of overlap. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah so did you have any idea that, that running or that's mm. that outdoor sport or that being so active would be part of your future oh uh, no I you know had a very uncomfortable relationship with sport <laughs> to put it politely uh, um still today I would not say I'm a natural athlete uh, I'm very uncoordinated if you actually put me on any sport for the first time <laughs> I have a lot of fear of how poorly I will show up in that space. So even now, you know, I do a lot of adventure racing and I raced on the weekend and even just getting into the kayak at the beginning, it was a different kayak than what I thought and it was a really tippy kayak and I just kept having these visions of like tipping me and my teammate out of the kayak. So I I have a lot of fear about um, entering into any sporting space when I haven't done it because I still have that vision of me as a kid kind of being incredibly awkward and uncomfortable and kind of being laughed at for not being good at it. Isn't that so fascinating that the Mm. people who literally you can't 
define yourself at any one time and be sure that you won't end up in something completely different because Mm. you being, you know, not a sports person and then ending up as literally an endurance athlete. Oh, it's, it's just crazy. Yeah, it, it's quite laughable. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm st- it's bizarre for me to say that I'm an endurance. I think I say endurance athlete because it's so vaguely over-encompassing. <laughs> it doesn't feel so specific. It's not so specific. It's like I like to do anything that's long, you know. <laughs> and, and outdoorsy. Outdoorsy. Kind of. <laughs> I'm an adventurer. <laughs> but I love that because you're such a real-life example of, you know, stumbling upon something and literally just seeing where it goes and then happening to become quite extraordinary at it. And, and it's still came from even a release from the fact that I was very focused on the academic side of my life. Mm. I was so intense in my preparation for my exams in year 11, year 12, that my mum said, you need to have a break. Like you can't just study all the time. Like (laughs) for me, what was like, what was my sport was seeing how many practice English essays I could do in a couple of hours. (laughs) This is why we got (laughs) (laughs) I would time it and I would just like, it was like that really, I think back to it and I, I created it like a sport I practiced and practiced and got better and better (laughs) but then it got to a stage where my mum was just noticing that I was sitting down too much and it's not healthy to you know be you know sitting at a desk and having the light switched on and the blinds closed and you know you need to see a bit of you know you need to be outdoors and have a bit of oxygen coming circulating (laughs) natural and uh so I started to run around Listerfield Lake as a break from study to be able to be fresher when I was studying Mm -hmm. uh and then I realised in that six kilometres when I'd run around Listerfield Lake and it was never at the beginning, you know, it was a walk run and then it became like a run and then it was, you know, quicker and quicker. And for me, it was the only time that I didn't think about what had passed or, you know, think about what was to come. Yeah. I just completely switched off and it was because it was a foreign thing to me. So my mind space was consumed with the action of doing something new. And then after I got used to that new thing, it was about being the observations that I would make when I would run. And, you know, Listerford Lake is right near lots of kangaroos that come past at dusk. And, you know, you'd see other runners and people who would walk in the opposite direction. And so I just, I really got just connected to that moment. Oh, how beautiful. I didn't, I've never heard you say that actually about Mm. starting to run. So when we met at uni and were balls deep in many practice exams together and (laughs) in some very questionable personal hygiene decisions (laughs) so that we could extend our, our study time, you, in the midst of that degree, did your first long distance run, which was Run Melbourne in 2008. Is that right? Was that the first one? Or was it Oxfam? Was that the first one? I think Oxfam was the first one. Yeah. So I, it's so weird now to look back, but I knew Samantha pre-running. Yeah. Which is so interesting. Which says that running is, is not actually... It's very democratic. Yeah, it's very new in my life, really, still. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been a decade, pretty much. And it always fascinates me how people define themselves. This whole, like, self-definition thing is a big part of this podcast. And it's interesting that now what a lot of people define you by is something that I knew you before it was even on the horizon. And I think that's an even more exciting thing to talk about because the potential for people to change, the potential for you to find things that you never th- ever thought were going to be a big part of your life. You know, and definitions... And the way we choose to characterise ourselves is something that I am always ill at ease with because I think you can't be defined by the one thing that you do mm. at that certain point in time. Mm. So I would never call myself a runner. I would even not, you know, if someone said, oh, you know, what do you do? I wouldn't be like, I'm a lawyer. 
I just think that we're more than one thing. Mm. And I always like to say to myself, like, what if one day I couldn't run anymore? And, and you've had some, some guests on this podcast that have had their ability to do the things that they love taken, taken away from them, mm. at least in the form in which they used to do it. And I just think you've got to be more than the one thing that you love. And more than your output and productivity, more than your yeah. activities, you have yep. to be something separate to what you do. Yeah. I think Agape uh, Stasinopoulos, one of the things that she always says is we're human beings, not human doings. I like that. Isn't it such yeah. a simple way to just bring yourself back to how you define yourself and how it's not necessarily your output or your, you know, what, you, what you're doing all the time? Mm. So from that very first run... You wouldn't have called yourself a runner back then and probably didn't know what was to come. What went through your mind then? What did you think that running was for you back then? And then how did that lead you to just two years later going from a small scale, well, small scale in the, in the scheme of things, mm. small scale run and a single run to the Four Deserts Grand Slam, which is literally four ultra marathons in the coldest, windiest, driest and hottest, and hottest <laughs> deserts in the world. Mm. That's a big jump. Babe. It's a big jump. It's a big jump. And I think, you know, I got to this point in my, I guess, law degree mm-hmm. where I just started to realise that tra- the trajectory of my life was just so certain mm. and so predictable. You know, I actually came to this point where I realised that I had never, ever done something where I didn't know what the outcome would be. And it doesn't mean that I wasn't aiming for big things and I wasn't being ambitious, but there was just so much certainty around every step of the process and I was always very clear of what the end destination would be. Yeah. And because of that, that actually freaked me out more than anything else. And I just thought, and my favourite quote is, if you want something that you've never had, you have to do something that you've never done. And the reason that I love that is... You know, we never know what's on the other side of our comfort zone, on our familiar. And so only when we choose to go beyond it, does the world become that little bit deeper and a bit, you know, I guess more exciting. And even if it doesn't work out, you know, even if what happens on that unknown space isn't where you actually want to land or stay in, Mm. you're always more richer for that experience. Absolutely. And so for me, like I kind of asked myself the question, you know, what scares you the most? And I couldn't help but think of that little girl back in primary school who was shitty at sports, who was always the last to be picked in teams. And I just thought I have defined myself as a shitty sports person my entire life, which means I've actually never ventured into anything athletic. Mm. And I just thought I'm going to do a marathon. Just going to explore. I'm just going to do it. And, um, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I mean, no one in my life was running. So it's not like I even had peers who could, you know, tell me how to do it. But very quickly you find peers when you choose a goal that's beyond your past experiences because you start to enter into that space and you realise that there, you know, there are other people who are doing those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, like, downloaded this training program off the internet. <laughs> I became very fixated in being, you know, completely compliant to that training program. And I just remember thinking, you know, as I started to, like, tackle each new distance, and, and you've, you're going through this right now. I'm watching mm-hmm. your social media and I'm great friends with you, but, you know, every time you're up to – 12 k's now 12 yeah so well can I just say Sarah's actually run more than 12 k's before actually one time she has with me in the Simpson desert but this is on your own it's you know not it's because of your own motivations towards a certain goal but I remember when I did my first 5k run I remember the first time I ran around the botanical gardens and ran the entire way up Anderson Street Hill like I remember that moment still and I remember thinking 
I'm not just physically the strongest I've been in this moment, but I am mentally the strongest I've been Mm. because I've gone from something that wasn't even my mental vocabulary to completing it and excited about what's next. And that next is the unknown. Yes. And I think that's something so cool about that. We don't always have to know every single step of the way. And I think surrendering to that is so powerful. Absolutely. And that's actually something that you've really helped show me in our years together is that, you know, when we first were friends, you were a little bit further, obviously, through these experiences, much further along in your journey to embracing the unknown. And I was still very much in that place of I was still working full time. I was very risk averse, very in the bubble and, and, you know, very accustomed to familiarity and comfort. And I remember our very first trip to India, everything was out of my comfort zone, every single part of that whole experience. And in fact, looking back, what has made me become a discomfort junkie is your encouragement that it's fine. The unknown is fine. In fact, not just is it fine, it's where all the magic happens. I mean, that trip that that Sarah is describing to India, it was very out of everyone's unknown. I pretty much took Sarah and Nick, um, her fiancé and a couple of other friends to um, northern India, to the western part of the country, to a place where the altitude was at about 4,000 metres above sea level and I was doing a 222-kilometre non-stop run between the world's highest motorable pass and that <laughs> peaked at 6,000 metres above sea level. So our geography was unknown. We'd never, None of us had travelled to India before. The altitude was... Every single breath that you took was incredibly um, laboured. And even just being at the four and a half thousand metres was terrifying to think of what was going to be like at 6,000 metres above sea level. The temperature shifted from, you know, a really comfortable climate to extreme soaring heats in the 40 degrees to like snow blasts, um, you know, avalanches, you know, in the second half of the race. You know, we were constantly being changed with being questioned with what was our known. And even though I'm someone who likes to throw myself out of my comfort zone, I'm also someone who likes to be incredibly prepared as much as you can possibly be to go into that space. Mm. And I think that's an important stage of the process when you choose to do things beyond your past experiences. Being prepared, creating a plan, doing your risk mitigation, your due diligence, assembling your team together, being clear on your mission, knowing how to communicate that mission, that's everything that gets you in the game. Yeah. And then the next phase is when you're in execution mode in the unknown <laughs> zone, that I think the greatest quality that you can have is your capacity to be adaptable when things don't go to plan. Yeah, absolutely. Again, something that you've taught me along the way in all the different scenarios that we've been in together is that kind of adaptability to change and to things to not and and being able to surrender to whatever happens and knowing that you'll be able to adapt whenever it happens. Yeah, and it's, you know, there's such a contrast between those two spaces because you've got someone here who's thriving off like creation of plan and hoping that plan works out and then you actually have to be I think you have to be able to drop your ego Mm. and go, you know, this plan no longer works. Mm. I have to throw this aside and create something that suits the circumstances that are in front of me right now. Mm. So what went through your head literally going from finishing your first marathon, which for many people is 
you know, enough of a tick of the box. That's getting out of their comfort zone. That's proving that they can physically do something and mentally do something they've never anticipated they would do. I think for a lot of people, the buck stops there. Yeah. What then made you decide I'm going to not just enter into the world of ultra marathons, but do four of them in one year mm. in crazy conditions, which then has led to kind of the next couple of years. At that point back then, what sold you on the idea to do it? So when I was training for the marathon, I would do a lot of runs with a friend and his mum was a publisher and she was telling me, you know, she was kind of like, oh, good on you for training for your marathon. I'm publishing a book of these two Aussie guys who are running uh, across the Sahara Desert and doing a 250 kilometre race. And I was like, oh my gosh, I thought a marathon was huge. I'd never even heard of these like 250 kilometre races. And she goes, and you know what? They're not just running in the desert, in the hottest desert on earth but they're also carrying everything they need to survive in a pack on their back whilst they're running. And like my mind just exploded. And I remember kind of like, you know, she'd have a couple of the pages by the printer and I would look at them and it was all about their preparation you know, and what the race itself was like. And I found it fascinating, but that was it. And then I did the marathon and I ended up meeting this lady uh, from the US. She was 52 years of age and she had put out on like social media, and I don't even know how I found it. This is back in 2007, she, or maybe 2008. And she had written somewhere, you know, I'm, I'm a lady, I'm, I'm in my 50s, uh, I'm trying to do a marathon in every continent in the world this year. Melbourne is my seventh um, continent. Um, I'd love to meet anyone from Melbourne who can maybe take me around the course uh, in the days leading up to it. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this, this woman's amazing. Like she's in her 50s. She's tackling this logistical feat. Uh, you know, the, the least I can do is show her around, you know, my home city. And so I did and I just, you know, she was just this very normal woman who just chose to do something that so many people would believe. They couldn't. They couldn't. And it's not like she was particularly, you know, physically athletic. She certainly didn't have the characteristic of what I thought a marathon runner looked like, mm -hmm. straight away defying, like changing my perception of what it, you had to be to be a marathon runner. And then she told me about the Four Deserts Grand Slam <laughs> and how in like 18 months' time she was going to try and run four 250-kilometre desert ultra marathons, you know, in, in the most extreme environments on earth, Chile, China, Egypt and Antarctica. And I was so amazed by this woman and after we ran the marathon, I couldn't even walk up the steps to the law library. I was in so much pain. <laughs> the law library. And so I, I started to think, what would that be like to have to back up that marathon another day and another day and another day? And I just thought, if this lady can do four, I reckon I can do one and be there to support her. And I was sitting at a table at dinner with her the day after the marathon with a bunch of friends. And I'm like, I'm going to sign up for it. This was chilly, wasn't this it? This is chilly. And Had so I just literally signed up to do one of the races. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to put a break on this conveyor belt of what I thought success had to be in the law space. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes the hardest decision is to slow down the trajectory of where everyone else, the pace of everyone else and go, I'm going to take a pause and I'm going to do something different and mm. I can jump back on and the wheels can keep turning and it's going to be okay. So that was the first step for me to know that I didn't have to do everything at the same pace as everyone else and I was going to be okay. Absolutely. That's something I talk about all the time is that productivity hamster wheel, which in some worlds is a lot more 
encouraged as a default than in others and it's hard to break away from it but Mm. I think that's where you start to go into autopilot mode and aren't necessarily making decisions consciously about where you want to go you're just on it because you're on it but I love that very early on you broke out and well yeah I was with a doctor at the time and so you had like a lawyer and a doctor and both of us were in that world together Mm. and you know we always talked about not being doing things at that pace but we found it very hard to kind of step aside. Mm. So I saw this race as an opportunity to take six months off uni. And so I did this race and then I also did a three-month placement um, volunteering at a capital defence office. So I was working on a death row campaign um, and I was living in Houston, Texas. I mean, I was living in Houston, Texas as a vegetarian... I mean, I'm four foot eleven point five. I'm basically a midget. <laughs> point five, guys. Point, point five. five. <laughs> Don't want to sell myself short. <laughs> that was reprieve, right? The reprieve mm, yeah. project. I so that. I was doing this placement just after I, I ran the race. And when I ran the race, it was just this mind-blowing experience where everything that, that I thought running an ultramarathon would look like, it, it wasn't like that at all. But I survived it. Mm. In fact, I got stronger as the days went on in these races. I've seen your body do that a couple of times Mm. and it fascinates me. Yeah, it's because I never am particularly trained enough to start on day one. (laughs) (laughs) You're always winging it. (laughs) Yeah, there's a little bit of winging it when I go into it. And it's because running is not my everything. Mm. So I don't... um, I don't give myself the time to train like a full-time athlete Mm. because I still want to be committed to the other things in my life. You know, I still wanted to be a law student. Uh, I still wanted to have relationships with my friends or my partner. And so therefore the training is important, but it's not everything. So on day one, when everyone else is probably a little bit more trained, they go out super, super hard and I'm like, Playing, yeah, I'm climatizing. I'm playing catch up. But what typically happens in these races is the body does um, adapt to the environment that you're in. And there in Chile, it's the driest desert on earth. Um, you're also at elevation as well. And if you give it a little bit of space and you don't go at 100% capacity or 110% capacity, which a lot of people do on day one, it has that time to make those minor adjustments, to heal quicker, to adapt, and you can build up to be a stronger athlete as the days go on. And, you know, fortunately that happened for me. And so I actually finished the race in a quite a good overall position, even though I walked a couple of the days in the race and mm-hmm. I only really, I guess, looked anything like an athlete <laughs> in the latter stages of the race. Oh, my gosh. I still can't – I can't believe – that was like the first one and now, I mean, that seems like such a short distance now. <laughs> I, I, feel <laughs> like, I feel like my life has been played by being the underdog, to be honest. Yes. And that's not a bad place to play in. You know, I remember in the first couple of days of these races, because I was walking because I was so puffed and like I was so underprepared for what I was actually putting myself through, everyone just dismissed me as this little mm. Aussie power hiker I mean I can hike really quickly <laughs> she's got a great shuffle going on yeah but I, I wasn't <laughs> running the first couple of days so everyone's just like oh there's that walker and then by the time I felt ready to kind of run people were shocked going where did, where did this girl come from she's like ranked in the bottom 20 of the field why is she now passing us on day four and five mm. um and so I think when you're executing big goals a degree of humility and again once again the capacity of dropping the ego to go I've never done this before let's respect the challenge that I'm placing myself in Mm. of course still throw myself into this new challenge like don't you know don't be shy to do it but go let's just build into it and let me learn from the observations from the people around me and you can do that when you're not going at 100% and then I can get better yeah so kind of pacing yourself through it rather than just 
taking the ego out of it and just going for it as yeah. you know as like a let's just see what happens yeah let's let my body give it some space to kind of adapt to everything yep Oh, so fascinating. And so what then drove you to sign up for three more Oh, <laughs> in the same year? Yeah, because I was in Texas then and I was doing this work in this capital defence placement. It was so hot in Texas. I mean, it was like 45 degrees, 95% humidity. Uh, I had an a, apartment that was six kilometres from where the office was and I was so poor because I was volunteering and I you know, wasn't working anywhere else to earn any money. So I was either running or... Um, cycling to the office every day and they didn't even have a shower in the office so I remember just like <laughs> bird bathing with like wet wipes <laughs> under to try and I was so sweaty um, but I remember thinking and then the work that we were doing was so tough mm. um, you know the person whose case that I was working on death row was emotionally very straining for me it was making me question like my values on death row um, it made me so sad for the state of the justice system in mm. the US, mm. you know, where people who, this is, we talked about talking about light topics and here I'm talking about <laughs> capital punishment. Real deep shit. Yeah. But anyway. No, but it's a big part of your journey. I yeah, it was, a, it, it was just, it made me question a lot of things. And I just remember thinking, you know, there's nothing that's going to be really harder than doing the work that I'm doing right now where the stakes are so, so high. Like mm. the stakes are about life and death. Mm. I thought, wow, what if... It was almost like I needed to be taken to a fantasy world yeah. and that to cope with how tough that situation was. And the fantasy world was no woman in the world has ever completed these four desert races in one calendar year. Two male professional athletes had done it before. And I just started to think, what if I, what if that could be me? Like what if I logistically as well as physically and emotionally <laughs> could pull this challenge off and it became my distraction from how hard that capital defence placement was. Yeah. And, you know, my A-type personality loved getting the spreadsheet out and just like financially working out how I was going to fund it, how I was going to take the time off university and still kind of keep on the conveyor belt at the same time mm. to kind of still finish my law degree when I expect to... So there was just so many things that my brain got to kind of enjoy working. It was like this puzzle and how could I create this puzzle to still kind of come together with adding a few more components into it. And, I mean, it sounds interesting because it actually has nothing to do with running. Yeah. It, you know, this challenge for me became about so much more than the run itself across the desert. It became about, like, how much can I actually pull off? Um, that's all in unfamiliar territory. I've always seen one of your greatest strengths in this whole going from literally not running at all to running these extraordinary distances has never been a physical challenge. Like mm. it obviously is physically challenging, but I've never perceived it as a physical challenge for you. It's always been very a mental, like what, how can I pull off this feat logistically, mentally? How can I pull it all together and make it work? And then the physical part of it is just you know, one element of the training mm. that you need to do. But I think that's one of your greatest strengths is that it's a mental game. And you're like, if I can't be defeated mentally, my body's going to have to live with that. I'm just going to have to keep up with that, you know. It's well, yeah, and it's there obviously is limits to what our physical capabilities are and mm. mental. Uh, but when I finished the four deserts, um, I just remember thinking I can do anything with the caveat being that I want it enough. Yes. When I want something enough, I can pull off extraordinary things. In fact, we all can pull off extraordinary things. And so, you know, it, it won't, doesn't work for someone going, well, I couldn't do the four deserts or I couldn't run a marathon or a half marathon, which I hear all the time from people. The question I throw back at them is, well, how much do you want to? 
Mm. Um, and so you can't listen to my story, someone else's story and go, but I couldn't do that thing. The, the question that you need to ask yourself is, so what do you want the most that you're willing to put your mind and body, you know, to the line for to make happen? Absolutely. And you are like a living example of literally throwing new limits out each time with a drive to actually care about, you know, being Mm -hmm. able to achieve it, but proving to yourself that really you can do anything beyond your wildest expectations of yourself Mm -hmm. and, and surprise yourself completely in what you can do by just doing it. Yeah. And and it's changed over the years of how I choose to push myself and go into my comfort zone. You know, I was in the race uh, in the Kimberleys with Mm -hmm. the bushfire and I had just come back from that race with you uh, in India. Mm-hmm. And because I'd spent so much time at high elevation, I actually was really quick in the first like 30 kilometers of the 100K race. Mm-hmm. It's like I had a superpower of speed. <laughs> I just was running so fast. And you know what? If I hadn't spent that time in India with you, having that high elevation training, I certainly would have been in that bunch of the field that it would have been caught up with the fire. Because mm-hmm. um, that's probably where my natural pace would have been at. Um, I finished, you know, that experience definitely having a high degree of survivor's guilt Mm. that, you know, essentially my comrades who were the runners were caught up um, in the high ground with a bushfire and the rest of us were left to keep running. Like the top 10 of the field continued to run whilst, you know, Turia and Kate and three others were being severely burnt waiting to be rescued by a helicopter. Mm. And I came away from that experience. I remember I didn't leave like my bedroom for like a week. Um, No one communicated with us from the race. No one even checked on how we were. So awful. Um, I just remember thinking, and it wasn't that I could have been caught in that scenario. I was just like, we put you put your your life um, in the hands of these race organisers, hoping that they are going to protect you from you know natural disasters, mm. or at least if a natural disaster occurs, their communication and emergency responses are good enough to protect you. Mm. And I just felt that there had been a complete disregard of a duty of care. Mm. And after that point, I was like, I don't want to put my hands, um, well, my life in the hands of a race organiser. I'm so gonna, you became one. I was like, I'm going to, you know, I didn't want to stop. I didn't, it didn't stop me from wanting to run and to wanting to explore the war on, the world on foot, but I wanted to do it on my terms. Yeah. And I also then wanted to do it for something bigger than myself. Like I'd already had that testing of like how mentally and physically strong I could be. I kind of wanted to reconnect with like the origins of the law degree. Mm. You know, can I do something um, to positively impact the social space? But hey, can I now do this through running? Uh, And so that's when I guess my running for change campaign really began. It's so cool again to see that, you know, you didn't start out your running journey knowing where it was going to end up. You were still a lawyer. I mean, you you managed to graduate with really good marks and get into an amazing firm, Baker and McKenzie, and, you know, very similar pathways for us both, you know, starting out in law is a very good platform, but very quickly learning that that wasn't necessarily where we were going to end up. But again, it's that whole that whole message of you don't have to know where you're going to end up when you start. Mm. And also every little bit along the way counts towards where you're going to end up as well, even if you don't know it at the time. So I love that running for change is something you were always like putting, looking backwards in hindsight, all the dots connect and make sense. But you didn't know that at the time and it took you a while to build up to that. Oh, yeah, because there doesn't exist a job where you can run and create social impact. I mean... I've checked seek several times. Yeah. <laughs> the career, and I'm not coming up with results. <laughs> yeah, the career path doesn't exist. Essentially, I 
created that um, by kind of drawing the dots together of the things that I really cared about and that I was good at, but more importantly, that I wanted to spend my time into. So, you know, after I worked in law, I wasn't yet ready to kind of um, go out on my own into this very (laughs) uncharted waters. (laughs) I ended up then working in finance uh, and then I worked in communications. So I definitely went to a lot of different career paths or three different areas and every time I just got as much information from that industry Mm. um, as I could. And, you know, I I never regret my time in law. And you'll be the same. Like Mm. the things I learned as a lawyer, um, I apply on an everyday basis. You know, ability to contract review, to communicate, to negotiate, to know my worth, um, to work in teams, um, to have respect for co-workers Mm. uh, in the space. Uh, and the ability to work really hard with yeah. <laughs> a little sleep. <laughs> but to also know that's not a great thing as well. Yes. So, yeah. you know, I feel like I've taken the best out of my time in law, but now I've become very aware of why that wasn't the right space for me. So I try not to replicate those same traps mm. when I work for myself now. Mm. So this amazing kind of shift towards running for change and structuring the expeditions and races on your own and kind of running outside of the context of another organized race that's already there and really carving out, literally carving out a path across countries that hasn't been carved before. That all started around 2012 with mm. Crossing the Simpson, which was the second expedition that I was so, so lucky and, and very privileged to be on with you. That was the first nonstop 379 kilometers. <sighs> 220 was it 220 sand dunes that were it just was enormous at that stage but guys to put this in context that was the start of the journey not the end that wasn't even the peak the next two years later the South Africa Freedom Trail run was another run that was organized by Sam 960 1968 kilometers over 32 days to raise $55,000 was it yes for a South African initiative uh, that increased access to feminine hygiene products in an area where it's, you know, not very well educated about, it's not talked about, there's not a lot of access for young women to information and to products to support them through, you know, being a woman. And then two years after that came Run India, which Nick was then lucky enough to go back on for his third expedition on (laughs) on the Samantha bus, um, which was 3,253 kilometres over 76 days, which is just, I mean, can you even process those distances it is absolutely extraordinary and to a third party it's so mind-blowing but to you hearing those stats back what does it feel like and Mm. when you were first setting out in this running for change um you know what did you think it was going to look like at the time what did you think you were getting yourself into and how did you think it would progress because it's always interesting to look back and think about you at that time and then you now with hindsight? I don't know if I ever thought it would become the major thing that I would be doing um, and that it would funnel all the other work that I do alongside it. Uh, For me, it was just, you know, I had these visions of these certain projects that very much started as dream ideas Mm. and that as my experiences grew, I started to back myself that I could turn these very raw ideas into workable blueprints that then became like really structured concepts that had the capacity to make a small impact into a space that I cared about. And so they've just kind of like grown as time's <laughs> gone on. And it's not about the distance. And for me, the distance is as, as arbitrary uh, um, as the numbers as you just heard. They mean mm. nothing. Like, do you know what? I actually 
realised recently that that distance that I've been quoting for the run across India, like 3,253 kilometres, is actually less than what we did. <laughs> I actually and, think you told me that. Yeah, um, <laughs> but it doesn't even matter because it means like I don't care about records. Yeah. In fact, I do whatever I can now to make sure that my runs are not records because – when you do a record run, that's what the media and everyone focuses on. It mm. becomes this catchphrase um, mm. and attention goes on to that as opposed to why I choose to do it. And so I feel like now I've got enough of a credibility that people will listen to what I've done, meaning you know the media, mm. um, that I can push them into the direction that I think really matters. And you know, for me, what I love the most about the projects that I do is that I'm trying to shine a light onto the various barriers that children face when it comes to accessing a quality education. Mm. Now, you and I have been so um, incredibly privileged to have, you know, the access to education that we have. Uh, it's been almost a given for us. You know, mm. in fact, if you, you know, weren't adopted by your parents, maybe mm. your life would have been, you know, very different. So you can kind of connect to that the lottery of birth plays a huge role in, you know, the choices and opportunities that naturally come your way. Uh, and so because of that, I've just felt that as opposed to just building a school, which some people think is the easiest solution to giving a child the chance to go to school, you actually have to go into some of the ingrained reasons why they can't enter into that school ground in the first place. Mm. Uh, and I thought when I that run across India, which was from the west to the east, and started in the desert. Um, we spent 800 kilometres running through. I always say we. Um, it was me and I had friends who came out and joined me at different points. Yeah. But I like to make it seem like it was a collective. <laughs> um, but it was. And when you said, you know, Nick joined the bus, well, we lived in a camper van. Like literally, guys. Literally. literally Nick joined the van. The van. We had a camper van. That, which Can I tell you, it's very hard to source a camper van in India. <laughs> um, it's very hard for a Western woman to source a camper van in India as well. Um but I had a, you know, Indian logistics team. I had a, a team members that I came from Australia, from South Africa, from the United States who formed different elements of my team throughout the journey. 800 kilometres through the desert and where we really learned the issues such as the prevalence of the sex trade, um, the remoteness of where um, the villages are to where the schools are, um, obviously the issues of access to water, mm. are all such huge issues of why a child might not be able to go to school. Mm. And you go into the urban centres of, you know, Delhi, um, where we spent so much time going into the slums, obviously personal safety and protection are significant reasons why a mother is fearful of her child leaving the home to go to school. Mm. Or if you go up into the Himalayas, which was my most amazing place to spend any time in, in India because I love the mountains, um, Resources, access to food security, um, child marriage are big issues why, you know, children might not go to school. Mm. And so as we ran across the country, we pushed our bodies to an experience of what it was in a small element of what self-survival could be. Mm. You know, it was the only time in my life where I have truly felt what it's like to live on a daily basis. You know, we lived just for the movement going forward. Um, sometimes it was hard for us to access water. You know, it's not like we – there wasn't shops every 30, 40 k. Sometimes we didn't have access to water for every couple of days, but we didn't have space to kind of hold on to bulk water. Mm. And, you know, I'm not saying that we were living survival like the people in India do, but it was the closest degree of empathy on a, a real level that we could have to then meet people and to be able to share those stories that are so often untold. And so it was a storytelling opportunity as well as a fundraising opportunity, 
Um, but, you know, how do you get people to fundraise for something that you think is important? You've got to give the people who are living that scenario day in, day out to better share their story on a wider platform. Yeah, and there's an amazing, amazing documentary that came out about Run India that does really turn these 18 community visits that you did into stories that you can relate to and that you can actually get a bit of an insight into the issues that you're talking about because it's very far removed for for the majority of people unless there's a spokesperson like you who, who has platforms to then make it interesting and make it appealing and raise funds. You raise $200,000, which is absolutely amazing. But short of you creating a method to make to bring it to the forefront of people's attention you've just done such an incredible job to do it and yeah and the the thing is you know the stories whilst you say they're so far removed from what we might live every day Mm. like the things that I learned from people who were living those communities I've actually tried to apply into my life Mm. the degree of community um and how ingrained that is and how women are supporting each other um is something that I feel that in the Western world I don't see as much, you know, but we'd be up in the Himalayan communities and you'd have small homes that were all connected together and women were planting, um, you know, crops that would support the environment at that time and then they would kind of, when the crops were developed, they would pick the, the fruit off the plants and then they would turn it into a juice um, juicing business and then they would go and sell them in the markets and they all would be working together. Yeah. And I never heard, we spoke to these women for hours and we never heard any degree of community. People would be supporting the other person, telling the story of what they had done. And I just remember thinking, oh, like, I want community like that as well. Yeah. Um, I want to support my neighbour. And, and I definitely feel like coming from that experience, the relationship with the women in my life has ha- enhanced even further as well. It's so interesting you say that because I actually found that too with um, when we went to Africa that, you know, people, when you come back, they always say, oh, my gosh, were you so overwhelmed and so, you know, in just was your main takeaway just how lucky we are in the West? And like, obviously, of course, that's Mm. the first thing that you think about. But the main thing was the reverse, exactly what you said, how much they taught me about Mm. joy and about presence and about breaking out in music and song and about connection with other people and about why a leaf is beautiful enough to look at for half an hour. You know, all that stuff was like, there are happier children there than I'd seen in the West for a long time, you know. Oh, yeah, and it's... It's a know, different happiness. I, you know, I'm mean, a goodwill ambassador for World Vision and I obviously, you know, love the work that they do um, within communities all around the world, but their whole philosophy is about, you know, a hand up, not a handout. Mm. And so it's not about just handing over money. It's about equipping um, a community with resources based on an idea that they have mm. that they believe is going to work within their community mm. and that they... They take, I feel like I'm using the word they, I don't mean it that way. <laughs> no, I know um, what you mean. <laughs> but I'm just trying to, about, you know, it's all about ownership of the idea that suits that community as opposed to me saying, oh, well, I've got this money. I think that you should build a, you know, water tap. And, you know, it's not, it's not about the idea from, from myself. It's mm-hmm. about what does the community believe mm-hmm. is going to support them to have opportunities to improve the health of their children, mm-hmm. to allow them to go to school. Um, that's going to allow them to then make a choice of what they want to do after they go to school. Mm. So such just such important work. And I just, I'm continually so inspired by the fact that each new project that you have has such an impact in an area that you're so passionate about as well. Like that becomes the main focus, but just stripping back from that a little bit, just on a physical level from, you know, 
the time that we were in The Simpson to now, how do you approach the physical side of it? Mm-hmm. Like it is literally doing the impossible, literally pulling off what people don't believe that bodies can do. How do you feel when you're running? How do you prep for that? How do you get through, you know, most of us kind of 3Ks or 4Ks or 5Ks in will go, ow, ow, I don't want to do this anymore. And you're waiting mm-hmm. for your warm shower when you get home. But when you're like, you know, a marathon every day, back to back for 70 days and that kind of thing, how what does your brain think? Do you mm. become delirious? Do you think about like what's the rewarding part for you? It is obviously there's the overall rewarding feeling of the cause that the whole mission is towards, but day to day is running physically rewarding for you or is it a means to an end? You know, I've never actually asked you this, but what do you think through the day? Mm. A lot of questions there, Sarah. <laughs> there's so many questions. Yeah. I'm just like, I, I feel like I've, physically been there for a lot of time and I I, like there to address your emotional needs and your physical needs in terms of like what's immediate at the time Mm. like you know hypothermia let's get us in two minute noodles warm up her internal body temperature but I'm not ever sitting there going what are you thinking right now Mm. you know what's getting you to the next 100 kilometers and I never sat to ask you those things and I, I should preface it by saying that it was really 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 hard (laughs) Uh, you know I don't want to give any illusions that running across India wasn't hard and if people um, watch the Run India documentary which is about to screen 30 times around Australia at the Gutsy Girls Film Festival (laughs) you will see how hard it was Um, it's such a good snapshot well yeah it doesn't it doesn't hide um it doesn't make it glamorous you know I think social media can sometimes make these things Mm. even when you're showing discomfort you know in an image it somehow still gets glamorized via social media Mm. um I've seen your vomit be glamorized before I'm like wow (laughs) and and so if I was to say the preparation that I do in the lead up for these projects is very much looking at where I'm going to be running and what are the challenges that I'm going to be faced with understanding that I won't be able to simulate all those in training. Mm. So, you know, India was, for a huge portion of it, well into the 40 degrees, 100% humidity. Uh, I was running on the highway and often trying to avoid getting hit by the cars that were zooming past me. So I would push myself as far as I could to the side of the road, which meant I was running on a slope. Mm. And, you know, every single step that I would run on that slope slowly it, it put my body into imbalances. Mm. Uh, and so I, I did not prepare myself for the fact that I'd be running on this constant gradient mm. with one side of my body being slightly higher than the other. Uh, and so a two, two weeks into the project, I was in absolute agony. Mm. Um, but in the lead up to that um, kind of run itself, I'm jumping a few steps, you know, I, I tried to simulate the heat as best as I could. I put a treadmill in a hot yoga studio and when classes finished at night times, um, <laughs> one of my closest friends owns a hot yoga studio. So she gave me the keys and we put a treadmill in the corner. I mean, imagine like people trying to staying and they've got this like <laughs> little treadmill in the corner. like machinery <laughs> in the corner. <laughs> Everyone was very understanding. But um, again, it's about creating community. It's, you know, the whole community, that yoga studio, even before I started the run, were like fascinated by this weird treadmill. So we put up a sign and explained it. So more people are understanding why that treadmill's in there and what this person is doing but why she's doing it Mm. so you can create community and understanding well before you even start these projects but I would run on that treadmill for a couple of hours sometimes up to midnight and I would turn down the lights I would crank up the heat to like high 30s and I remember thinking oh my gosh this is (laughs) awful like it, it was really hard it was like you know imagine 
well, imagine, just imagine, that. imagine being in a hot yoga studio <laughs> on a treadmill. On a treadmill. <laughs> you don't have, yeah, it, it, it's not very comfortable in the slightest. Like, and I still, I love yoga, but I find, you know, it, a lot of mental um, focus to get through a class uh, of yoga where you're sweating and you're not allowed to wipe the sweat off your face and you're mm. not trying to have too many sips of water. Um, it's very challenging. So, but I would do that to prep myself for how harsh the environment would be. Now, Nick will probably remember <laughs> I was in Jaslamir a couple of days before the run and I was so focused on all the logistics that I hadn't actually run a huge amount in the like two weeks before getting to the start of the run. And I went out for a 5Ks one day before the run. I just wanted to go like, okay, so let's just mm. test out the body. Let's see what the breathing's like at this kind of humidity. And it was I basically finished that run, got into our hostel <laughs> room and I, I bawled. Mm. I absolutely cried and I was like, who do I think I am? Like mm. how do I think it's possible that I'm going to run across an entire country, like a country that I don't know, where I'm going to be eating Indian food every single day, where the logistics are so immense, where, you know, there's, whole, there's diplomacy issues, there's safety concerns, you know, there's bribery issues. There's so much that, you know, I'm trying to create content every single day. Like there was just – I had partners that I had delivered to kind of meet mm. and also I've just physically got to put my body through this and I just I had a little I'd say I had a little mini breakdown and I remember calling Nick I don't even know why I called Nick <laughs> but Nick was coming out in a couple of he was coming out in two months time mm. and I almost was calling him to go just don't <laughs> don't bother <laughs> don't, don't book your flight <laughs> and but I called him because he's been there for a lot of my stuff mm. and I think sometimes when you have low belief in yourself, you need to kind of reach out to the people who know you the best, who aren't going to sugarcoat it because Nick doesn't sugarcoat things. He's a very, he's a realist. So I actually, yeah. I, I'm too fluffy for moments like that. Yeah, to, I know you, I am. You would have been too sweet to me. Like mm. you can do it, which is lovely, but mm. I, I needed some like real truth. And I called Nick and he's just like, I just told him the whole scenario and he goes, how fast were you running? And I said, oh, I looked at my watch. I'm like, oh, I was trying to, you know, just it seems like I was going five minute K pace. And he's like, Sam, like you don't run that when you're doing your expeditions. And then he goes, you can run as fast or as slow as you want to run. Like no one's telling you how to do this. Mm. He goes, just take a day at a time. And I was just oh, like, Nick. I know. Wow. I think I made it sound more like poetic <laughs> than what I did. <laughs> no, but he just, he was, just gave me the truth. He, he got me to stats and numbers and reminded me that I was in the driver's seat. Mm. And, yes, I had an entire team of people here and it felt like, you know, there was this, this you know, orchestra that was playing music to my movement, but they were – it was only going to be conducted as fast as I By moved your pace, it. pace, yeah. And so I was like, okay. And it was true, like – you know, I took one day at a time and then it was like I took every 20K at a time and then I took every 5K at a time. <laughs> and by the second and third week, I was in a bad place. Yeah. Um, was that when the stomach? Yeah. Started? Like yeah. there was so much stress of that project where not one day went to plan. Like mm. I can't even utter or stress how much not one day went to plan. Mm. Like the route constantly changed because the conditions of the road weren't great. There were safety issues such as, you know, we'd come to an area and there had been a shooting there two days earlier, so no longer could we stay there anymore. Mm. We couldn't set up our camper van to get, um, you know, um, to set up the generator. Mm. There was just so many things at play that were culturally specific to where we were. Mm. In India, language... You know, not dialect, language can change every 50 kilometres. Mm. So I had an Indian team with me, but 
even like, you know, they could do a good job, but still like they were kind of getting their heads around things where we had to source food to be able to eat every single day. We could only hold enough supplies for three days. That's all we could fit in the camper van. And we were feeding a team of 12 people, you know, when it was at its fullest. There was issues with our Indian team because they are all from different caste systems as well. Um, there was bribery involved. Um, and so on top of running, we had to navigate all these different issues. And, and even with the Australian team, India is a hard place to operate in, let alone being in a camper van where you have no personal privacy. Mm. Um, and you're seeing tough things every single day. So the only thing that I can say is the reason why you choose to be in those situations plays a big role. Mm. And I've done projects before where I've had no connectivity to the purpose and then it's very easy to get lost in the world of the run and to get very eye-centric. And I knew going into India I couldn't do that and I didn't want to do it. So every three days I visited a community that World Vision support across the country. Mm. And you know what? I felt really shit at times. My body was in a lot of pain. But there's nothing like a great dose of perspective to give you an immense sense of gratitude that I chose to do what I was doing. With choice means that you can exit at any point. Like no one's got a gun at my head and telling me that I've got to keep running. Like I actually chose to do it. I feel like a few times there were some guns that you have. Yeah, that's fine. That's actually – she's not actually lying. (laughs) But, you know, there was – you know. I had the power at every single point Mm. and I've always been someone that has never wanted to finish a project um, and be miserable during the project but then reflect on it with happiness. I've always said, you know, like be someone who takes the time to go, I chose to do this, I love to do this, oh my gosh, I'm in the middle of India and I'm getting to run with my friends Um, and also then enjoy it upon reflection. But again, these are little choices that you have to make that when you're in the unknown space, when there's like conflict and chaos and uncertainty, you have to drag yourself back to that place. That's actually really interesting that I was next going to ask you, is the is the joy and gratification and gratitude all looking back or do you feel that? Do you have space to feel that along or along the way you just like fuck, 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 fuck and then at the end you look back? No, I, I don't. I, yeah, there were some really hard places yeah. um, when my body was in that much agony. Mm. I didn't know how I was going to get and move forward and my head was in turmoil. Mm. Uh, so there was probably about a week where I was just filling it with toxic energy the whole time. Mm. And because I was filling it, my mind with toxic energy, my body had no space to heal mm. and I almost needed to create a circuit breaker. You know, when you get yourself in a rut mm, and absolutely. it just, you can't get out of it no matter what you do. You just want to stay in bed. Um, you're thinking negative <laughs> yes. thoughts. You're surrounding yourself with negative people. Yeah, absolutely. You have to, you have to do something different. And I remember the one time I did something different is I called a day break. Um, oh. And I was meant to go to and do a community visit in Agra. And I was like, I'm so sick. I'm going to, I need to get an MRI and see what is the state of my knee because mm. someone, lulled it into my head that I might have had bone damage and therefore I wouldn't be able to keep moving forward. And whilst I can deal with a lot of pain, I also don't want to not be able to walk again. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to – I'm not um, – I don't enjoy pain to that level. And so getting the MRI and realising it wasn't that, then I had a plan. Yeah. I had a plan. And for me, circuit breaker, create a plan and just one step at a time. So you often spe- – I mean, now you are an incredibly sought after and I – absolutely know why an incredible public speaker and you draw on a lot of these experiences and stories to really help other people to perform as their best self and to explore parts of themselves that they might not have thought of uh, and just to elevate people you are so so good at using your story for that 
that exact thing. And one of the things you always talk about is the next best plan, Mm. which I love hearing about. And so tell us a little bit about that concept, because I think everyone could really benefit from what you have spent years and years cultivating as a plan, as a philosophy. And that obviously in the hardest of times gets you through. Mm. I've only really defined like it as the next best plan uh, in the prep to my TED talk, yeah. <laughs> which was um, a massive couple of weeks ago. Couple of, yeah, a couple of months ago. Um, but I was, you know, looking at my past experiences, and you know, I, I guess it's another viewpoint on adaptability. Mm. Like, how are we always being responsive to what is happening? to us in this moment. Mm. Um, And I think because I'm an A-type personality, I do have a um, tendency to hold on to the original plan. And what I've learned is in that initial plan, you actually need to create a plan B, plan C, plan D. And all of those are based on, well, the what ifs. You know, I think sometimes the best thing, and this is where Mark's been great for me, is he goes, you've got to like, you've got to wall plan out all the scenarios that might stop you from moving forward in whatever goal you have ahead of you. Mm. Um, And so for me, if I looked at India, well, one of those would have been bribery. What happens if we get bribed so much that all of our money goes and we actually can't move forward? Mm. It happened. (laughs) Um, You know, what happens if someone gets um, bitten by um, a really bad mosquito that completely paralyzes their body? That happened. I remember that. Um, you know, so all these kind of things, like what do you do in these worst case scenarios and how does the team rebuild to keep moving forward while supporting whatever is that situation that's happening? Like that's the next best plan. Um, the next best plan could actually mean to stop mm. and that's okay. And But like what does that actually look like as well? Mm. Uh, you know, I, we need to be creatures who are in the moment, reflective of what's happening. And I think in the political, the economic space that we're in right now, we've never than before been asked to be people who are capable of creating something else. Mm, So true. So like Mark's episode, there are just, I feel like I'm not even skating on the surface of all the things that are you. And I really want to get so much of your essence out, but I'm like, oh my God, I I can't like do a 10 hour episode. (laughs) Um, I think that's a problem when you know someone so well, it's like, there's so much to share, but I just want to move on to the NATA section. Uh, because I think that challenge and discomfort has been one of the biggest learning grounds for you and something that you've really taught me to seek out, not not be scared of and not interpret as a bad thing. And that, you know, translating that from these huge contexts back to just daily life, mm-hmm. it can be very valuable on a day-to-day basis to be able to understand the role that discomfort plays in your life um, and for self-reflection and for growth and for the next best plan on a broader scale. Like, what are you going to do next? How do you deal with finishing such a huge expedition and then knowing what comes <laughs> after that? You know, how, and how do you come down from that experience so I think Run India uh, the, the documentary which of course I'll include links to will show a lot of the obvious nays TA along the way like physical barriers or you know all the things we've talked about in terms of culturally in India or any expedition that you're doing there's a lot of straightforward nays TA but more so behind the scenes after you know coming home I know obviously in 2017 you and Mark met on Survivor and you're also gaining a much bigger public profile than you had at the very beginning because you're doing such amazing things. So 
I think one of the naysay I'd love to just explore a little bit here is how the relationships that you have when you change your life so much, mm-hmm. how that plays out. Because we've gone, I'm so grateful that we've been many different people in our friendship, but our friendship has weathered it very well. Like we've, we, can you even imagine us mm. back when we first met? <laughs> and there are quite a few people who have weathered it with us and who have also adapted in ways that our journeys have been so messy, you know, all along the way. But there's also times where the relationships don't gel as well and where the interactions with people as you change your life or as you change your goal or as you change your direction, you know, it becomes really difficult. And then reality TV adds a whole new level to it. And I know there's been a lot of experiences for you where the people element has been the biggest challenge. So can you tell us about a bit about that being a bit of an ATA on your journey? Um, like I know yeah. you are one of the best people at dealing with adversity, I think. I, I see you as someone who is so resilient and strong in the face of things that are uncomfortable or difficult uh, and out of your control as a control as like an a-type control freak it's hard but you're very you've taught yourself i think very well to deal with things being out of your control but then people is a whole new mm. ball game how has that played out for you in terms of uh, yeah, i yeah i only see it in a in a positive light now because I very much know who I am now. Mm. Uh, I also work for myself. Mm. And so I consciously choose pretty much everyone that I spend time with, mm. um, even through to the clients that I accept speak engagements with, that I then get to know the people inside an organisation, um, you know, it's not like I go, no, won't speak to you. I don't yeah. know like you <laughs> yeah. are, but like I... I get to speak and spend time with incredible people. I do work with great organisations, you know, like World Vision, the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Um, but, yeah, there's obviously been people that have trickled in and out of my life mm. uh, because I have, I guess I have morphed and grown as a person, mm. as I think every p- person should. I mean, if you're doing exactly the same things identically that you did 10 years ago, like maybe what you should be asking is, well, I, A, am I either just loving what I'm doing so awesome I don't need to change and that's great Mm. or b am I maybe playing a little bit safe and I could explore something different Mm. um yeah I think it there's been ebbs and flows with the relationships but I think I'm now at a place where I don't view um relationships in the same kind of controlling or long-term committing way that they maybe I used to see it Mm -hmm. you know sometimes people are in your life at certain times and they offer certain things to you and if all of a sudden that just doesn't gel based on where you are in your life. Mm. And there's no better example as when you have a kid. Um, And some people just, and it's okay. Like that's not where they are in their life. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I can't just leave my, you know, beautiful baby at home all the time. Like Harry comes along for the ride, but there's some (laughs) people who probably, I feel most people do want to spend time with Harry, (laughs) but I'm sure there's some people who don't really want to be hanging out with me with a child. So they might just kind of, you know, ticker around in the background. Mm. Um, Yes, I don't hold the same degree of attachments to things that may be passed just by nature. Mm. You know, but I guess if we look at relationships and something like Survivor, um, that was different. And you know how you use that word before, um, A-type control freak? Yeah. (laughs) How appropriate because (laughs) I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing. No, me Uh, either. And I, you'll probably remember that on Survivor, I referenced the word, I'm a control freak Mm -hmm. in a really flippant way. And I was actually trying to explain, you know, how do I sometimes do the things that I do? Well, it's because I... 
Control them. <laughs> yeah, control. Like plan them. Yeah, I plan them. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I think what I learned from Survivor and how you can be betrayed in a reality TV show <laughs> sometimes <laughs> is you really, we should actually take more ownership and care over the words that we use to describe ourselves. Mm-hmm. And women sometimes flippantly talk negatively about how we achieve the things that we do mm. as opposed to saying, I'm really dedicated I, um, yes. I'm, I'm an empowered person. And so I see things out to the very end. Uh, you know, I'm responsible, you know, I, I have strength, like as opposed mm. to using words that I, that are self-deprecating always. Yeah. Well, why do we choose the self-deprecating word? Mm. Um, maybe we're more comfortable by not speaking ourselves up. Mm. Uh, and so I, that, that was a good thing about survivor. And, you know, obviously there's some people who want to view you as the person that they saw on a reality TV show. I just don't care. <laughs> like, you know, at the big, I remember watching Survivor sometimes going, oh, my God, that's not me. I'm, I'm a multifaceted person. I'm a multifaceted person. I'm I not so many different dimensions. Um, they're just showing one side of me. But it also made me go, well, Sam, you know, you kind of are a bit that. Like, you're decisive. Mm. You know, you can't. You're a terrible liar. You you got an awful. <laughs> you are so bad. I know. You, you tried to hide surprises from me twice and it didn't work. I'm terrible. You've got a terrible poker face and you do struggle to be around people that are either lying to you, mm. um, you know, not being their true selves mm. or oh, I was going to say kind of not offering much substance. Mm. I'm not very good at small talk. Mm. Um, I should get better <laughs> at it. Because I'm, I'm really not. I, I yeah. like to get in deep. Like that's why, I, yeah. you know, this, you love is the probably, media stuff. this has probably become an hour and a half podcast because <laughs> I like to have a full discussion with someone about mm. ideas. Um, mm. And if we're just going to be talking about teeth whitening, I'm going to switch off really quickly and not even be able to feign interest. And that happened a lot on Survivor and it's why Mark stood out to me as this glorious human <laughs> i mean he's probably lucky that he i met him on survivor no, just no, but like you know mark didn't share anything about his military background mm. um i didn't share anything about the runs runs or the things that i really care about mm. but there you know when you can sense something about someone mm. where you're just like you've done something mm. you stand for something our values are aligned without you even you know sharing that much and that's what it was and I was so drawn to him I, I mean it was terrible gameplay and I even think <laughs> don't waste no time you two yeah but like we just it's we just couldn't help but talk I wanted to be around him yeah and I watched enough of a survivor to know like don't form too close an alliance but I didn't I this human <laughs> desire to belong yeah and I I felt like I belonged next to him. Oh, it makes me even emotional. But like, <laughs> oh, <so laughs> <it is>. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's true. Like yeah. he was my person, not on a romantic level. Just he was there for me, yeah. and I felt really at odds on that show. Like I, I didn't belong. Um, I felt like I had to hide who I really was because if I explained what I do in the real world, I, I thought that I would be perceived as a threat and I'd get booted out. But you know what? Not even being honest about who I was mm. was seen as a threat and I was booted out. So you might as well so have just I been yourself. I might as well have just been myself and yeah. stood proud for it mm. and then just, you know, gone out all guns blazing being me, yeah. you know? Um, and so that's what I've kind of walked away from, that it doesn't matter what circumstance that you're in, just be yourself. Mm. And if it doesn't work out or people don't connect with it, that's They're okay. They're not your people. Yeah. Um, but Mark was. And, and now know, you have a little person. And now we have a person who <laughs> might be nothing like us. <laughs> you don't know. Like, because that's the, that is 
the next unknown. Like mm. what is this little creature that we've created <laughs> going to turn into? <laughs> I love him so much. Oh, I love him so much. So has, I mean, obviously that hasn't been an ATA, but has the transition then from being very independent, independent people who haven't planned out the next best plan and literally just were suddenly like, oh my God, we're pregnant. Like how has that transition been, particularly because what you both do involves a lot of spontaneity, a lot of travel. It's not exactly the most child-friendly environment Mm. by its nature. And I think you've really pivoted well to not be too, um, you know, like, oh, the baby, like he's traveled since he was a kid, you know, he's worked into your life really well. And you've both pivoted so well to make your life still work. You haven't changed who you are fundamentally, because that wouldn't be who you are. Mm. And he's, you know, grown up in an environment that's so beautiful. But have there been challenges in terms of becoming a mum physically and mentally, changing your schedule, then burnout, not having as much sleep, having training schedules, you know, how have you dealt with all that? It's the best thing that ever could have happened in my life. Mm. Um, I... Do you remember I nearly crushed my car when you told me? <laughs> I had to pull over on the freeway. You know, I just did not expect to fall pregnant when I did. <laughs> I mean, I had only known Mark for uh, like five weeks. Yep. I mean, <laughs> And you know what, like I didn't know where we were in our relationship. I can't believe I'm talking about this on a podcast. Um, I feel like I'm talking about it to you. Um, That's the problem. Yeah. You know, so, and I was on the pill. Ladies, warning. No, I guess, I guess to kind of give context to it, we didn't plan Mm. to be in this new phase of our life. We didn't even know where we were within each other at that Mm. point. Um, we were kind of just going along the flow and we were still in the survival bubble world of we'd been on this island and we were kind of learning about each other, um, you know, quite rapidly, but still mm. like we we're on a road trip. Um, and so we were back home. Survivor hadn't even started airing. And so I had to That's watch. Right. Yeah, hadn't even started airing and oh. I was pregnant. And so I'm watching the show highly hormonal. <laughs> just like, no. Being betrayed as this one-dimensional control freak um, and like trying – and just going – you know, it was just – it was really hard. Like mm. watching the show was really, really tough and having, you know, then kind of obviously showing as a pregnant person. <laughs> you know, we did – I was 17 weeks pregnant when we had to do the reunion show and I hadn't told anyone. I think one or two – yeah, two people in our cast knew or three people in the cast knew but they didn't say a thing. Uh, and then the following week, you know, we kind of announced that we were pregnant. I love that you had to kind of – I mean, I guess we didn't have to announce, but we did because yeah. we met on that show. We didn't want to hide, you know, yeah. what had gone on, but we also didn't want to interfere what what was the Survivor TV show airing, which is a completely different experience to what our life was. Mm. Um, and you know what? Pregnancy was hard because I got really sick. Mm. Um, I'm a normally really active person in the final 20 weeks. I couldn't drive on my own. I couldn't be on my own. Um, I couldn't exercise, which actually wasn't an issue. Like mm. I was very focused on I'm creating life and whatever this life needs to do it thing. Um, but my heart rate soared, my blood pressure dropped, and I passed out in more cafes and on planes <laughs> than was imaginable. So I was very happy to have a healthy, beautiful baby boy. And I just surrendered to this new phase of my life, you know, was in the bubble of motherhood for the first couple of months. I'm lucky that I have a job 
that I'm allowed to go back to work and I want to go back to work and I can bring my child along. Mm. Now, no one told me that I could bring my child along to my speaking engagement. You just brought him along. I just did that and it's okay. Sometimes you just have to do things and if someone has an issue with it, you can work it out on the fly. But the more people see children um, and a professional woman, still being a professional woman in that space but still being nurturing and caring to her child – the more people realise that it's okay to, mm. to mix the two worlds if someone chooses to. You don't have to mix the two worlds, but I like to mm. um, because what I display on stage is who I am. Mm. And so I love what, it when Harry has a little noise in the back and you're yeah. like, oh, hey, that's my little son up there. Yeah, and I've never, I've, you know, so many of my friends, including yourself, just <laughs> rallied and came to speaking engagements all over the country. You know, I saw Harry, like, you know, bobbing his head at the <laughs> AV desk as I was, like, presenting on stage. I mean... I was so hormonal in the first couple of presentations I did after having Harry. I think I cried every single time. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's no joke, like breastfeeding and just having a baby, like this heightened emotions. But it's awesome. Like I have never felt more real and more comfortable about accessing like every single side of me, like the good, Mm. the bad, and just not hiding it away. Like I just created a baby. Like, you know what? I can cry. Like it's, it's okay. It has been the most beautiful thing Mm. to watch honestly Mm. like the whole process yeah I think Mark and I are an older um I guess we're slightly older you know he's 39 um I'm 34 and we really know who we are we've done a lot of stuff in our life and so Mm. you know you'd think that would mean that we're rigid but actually it's meant that we're comfortable you know we don't need to always prove ourselves anymore Mm. we can do the things when we want to do them uh, and Harry has become like this center point of yeah. you know who we are as well but but we want to also retain the pieces that we were before we were parents yeah of course and that is I imagine that is one of the big challenges is finding the right balance between maintaining a little bit of yourself that's not defined in those roles as a parent or as a partner or as a whatever so that actually leads really nicely to the last section which is called play TA as you know mm. which is really just separating ourselves from all the categories or all the titles or all the roles that other people define us by, which is natural, of course, as we have to be able to situate people in the universe. So there's, you know, a certain level of categorization is necessary, but I think it's become far too focused on output, far too focused on what we do, not who we are. And it almost encourages people to lose sight of themselves in those roles. You know, I think people get very lost in what they do and they don't know who they are outside of their job. And I think maybe in the law firm days, I had it, I don't know if you had it, but I definitely found that I didn't know what I was outside of a lawyer because that's what I was. I'd studied for it. That's what I did. Mm. And I would introduce myself like that and I would talk about everything from that reference point, but I had no other hobbies. I had no (laughs) idea what I liked and what I didn't. And it was such a shame to look back and think that there are still people in that place who haven't explored who they are outside of that. So what do you do for play? And, And has making running into a project and a job and a career, has that killed the passion in it and made it harder to access that joy? Have you had to find activities outside of that like yoga or like drawing or writing or whatever? And Sam also has a book on the way, lots of different (laughs) things going on. But, you know, I imagine there's not a lot of time, but in the time you have, who are you? How do you find your joy and your true essence outside of all the things that you are? It's something that I'm always... Depending on what phase I am with the projects um, depends on how much space I have. Mm. Um, 
I always want to say that I have a choice in how um, full I am. Mm. No one's forcing me to be as full as I am, um, but I don't always get the balance quite right. You know, we talk about this quite a lot. Um, <laughs> when we eventually get onto each other, yeah. we're the worst ever. We're not great with it. But, um, you know, my mornings are my like sacred time. Mm. So I might go and train really early at, you know, five o'clock um, and then I'll come home and I'll typically come home just as Harry's waking up. And so I'll grab him and then bring him into bed. And Mark shared this too, like our morning in bed playing with Harry um, is like we're so lucky that we have chosen to start our days that way. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be that way. You know, we could be going off to work. We could mm-hmm. be, you know, training at that time. But we always try and make it from like 7 a.m. till 8 a.m. We're at home. And we'll go out for a coffee and, you know, we live in the Dandong Ranges. And so we're always surrounded by trees and nature and it's a definitely a quieter pace. You know, there's not many people walking around the streets. There's no one in a suit. So you don't <laughs> kind of get trapped into, oh, I feel like I need to be doing something else. Yeah. What we're doing is exactly where we want to be at that time. Uh, I, ha- I don't lose a, the love for running. Um, I'm not as structured with it which allows me to have flexibility with how, my, how I train. And mm-hmm. I think because I'm focusing on an adventure race at the moment, there's just so much exploring with being on a mountain bike and climbing, um, stand-up paddleboarding. You know, this race that we have coming up in September is, has consumed both of us. Mm. It's, it's highly logistical, which, you know, you know that I like, but it's on a whole other scale as well. Yeah. Um, there's a team of four. We've had some changes to our team recently. So I've probably experienced a new degree of stress I guess based on some elements of betrayal. Mm. Um, Normally when I create a team, you know, it's a really harmonious team and I think I made some bad decisions with our initial team. Um, Fortunately for us, it it didn't work out and whilst that was so painful, when sometimes teams break apart, we can – I definitely felt the melancholy of that for a bit and I attached myself onto the emotion of the pain and the betrayal and now I'm at a pace of release and going, I'm now with a team of people that – I want to. I want to be stuck out in the jungle with for twelve days, mm. uh, and that's what's going to happen for us. And I think whenever you create a team, whether it's a physical team for an adventure or any team, ask yourself the threshold question: Do I want to be stuck in the desert, on an island, um, you know, in the jungle, or in an elevator with these people? <laughs> you know, such a good threshold. Question. It's a great test because when things are great, you know, you don't have to worry about it. But when shit hits the fan. Are these the people that you want to be alongside with? Mm. Are you going to have good banter with? Are they going to be able to turn tough situations into positives? Are they going to be realistically optimistic mm. um, at the same time as seeing the light side of things? Mm. You know, you still want realism amongst lightness. Mm, absolutely. Um, and so I think, I don't know if that answered your question about, you know, how am I finding the yay right now? But it's it's been a tough month for me with this transition of this new, te- this new team mm. uh, and – I haven't been sleeping particularly well. Yeah. Uh, and Mark actually is helping me with a new nighttime routine. Oh, cute. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> it, it, but it is, it's working. Like I, my brain's firing so quickly at the moment, more than ever. And I think it's because, you know, my schedule is quite full with, you mm. know, speaking around the country, you know, being, trying to be a very, very present mum, mm. training, but also doing the logistics of things. And 2020, I have some big projects. So I'm trying to start the burners mm. for what's to come in 2020. Um, because I would like to have a baby you know a second baby at some point and there's things that I want to do before then yeah um so maybe I, that's something that as women we 
particularly if you're an athlete, you have to think factor it into everything. You have to factor it because if your profession is about using your body, then how <laughs> does that look like when you're not doing that? Yeah. Um, and so Mark's created this beautiful routine for me at the night, which is starting to make a real big difference to me. And I mean, yeah. do you want me to sh- quickly share it with you? Absolutely. I think one of the most important things that I want to encourage people to think about is that yay looks different for everybody and some people are so time poor or just so fine and balanced without like you don't need an activity Mm. that's your yay it can be small routines that can be enough to keep you balanced and you know and and keep you who you are yeah I, i think it can be just the small things day to day it doesn't have to be I do pottery. Yeah. Or I, you know, it can, it's, it's for me, it's like, how do I wind down? Like, yes. how do I wind down to get a good sleep to then do all the things that I want to do during my day, yeah. which aren't like these specific activities. They're just like my life. Yeah. So um, the routine is to spend, you know, five, 10 minutes writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm often writing a couple of articles, but it could be a letter or it could be a journal, whatever it is. Just spend, you know, five, 10 minutes doing that. Then having a shower. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then getting out of the shower, I get dressed, obviously, <laughs> or not, <laughs> into those awkward pajamas that I wear. <laughs> uh, and then I do some stretching. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're doing the stretching together. And, uh, and we just, and whilst we're doing that, we're doing some deep breathing, like just really focusing on just, we're not talking, we're just really deep breathing, in breath, out breath, like really kind of taking the time for it. Then we'll sit on the end of the bed and we'll have our hands on our legs and we'll do the breathing again. Mm. Then um, I have a cup of tea whilst I read um, a book. And I've got to tell you, I haven't read a book for a long time because law burnt me. It it burnt my joy for reading. Um, And Mark reminded me that he hasn't seen me read much. And I used to love reading. And so a book that's just light, nothing too complicated. I know you love your crime novels. (laughs) I was Um, about to say that's become a big reading revival. Yeah. it's And, you know, I'm just doing it and just spending and and not doing it to get too tired. Just do it Mm. to kind of, you know, have a little bit of enjoyment wipe away all like the other thoughts of the day and just like immerse yourself in the book mm. and then I close it up and then Mark will always read for longer than me and he'll have the light on but I, I can sleep with a light on and I'll just get into his beautiful little nook <laughs> and I'll just cuddle him and I'll fall asleep and so now you're sleeping better and on top of that no devices in the bedroom yes such a good one and um stop being on the we're trying to be off the devices from 9 p.m at the absolute latest so put them we've got a bowl we put them in the bowl um put the alarm on and yeah that's kind of that's the routine and it's it's i feel like it's working well there are definitely there's so much research on the fact that small routines they're the signals to your brain you're teaching your brain to recognize from the start of the routine that soon sleep is going to come yeah otherwise you go straight from doing to like i need to sleep now of course you're not going to be able to fall asleep because you're too wired so that's the thing is i typically was falling asleep straight away but then i'd wake up at 2 a.m and the moment i woke up i couldn't go back to sleep because i'd start to think of all the things that i had to do so then i'd get up and just start working or i'd just sit there and agonize or uh, i mean (laughs) one time i got up so early that i was just like oh gosh i need to do something so i just like signed up for an f45 membership and went to the 5 a.m class (laughs) (laughs) this is the other bits of crazy shit that happens on in our brains (laughs) but yeah it's just it's about creating better habits to be able to recharge the brain Mm. and the body Mm. to then be able to do the things that you need to do Mm. and that actually brings up one question that i want to ask before the wrap-up questions i really struggle and you know i struggle with this i really struggle with 
the whole concept of momentum, and this is why I ask people this question all the time about productivity pressure. So when you don't, when you have a project on, it's clear that that's what you need to be focusing on. You've got logistical jobs, you've got a big to-do list. It's clear what the next thing is that you're meant to do, and that that's your purpose, and that you're fulfilled and whatever. But when you finish a project and you might not have anything planned, do you feel that? endless pressure to I love it (laughs) I love it (laughs) I have to just like cut no I don't have I don't have FOMO I don't have withdrawals I'm not someone who gets like the runners low after they've done a big expedition and this is something that I I feel so lucky that I naturally um feel at peace yeah when I have and it's because I throw everything that I have into my projects and yes sometimes I am cursed with single-minded focus whilst I'm doing it when it's done you don't need you, to have the next thing locked no in. like yeah. I'm done like I have learned to be at peace with what I've done and to reflect on it mm. and to sit and recover the pendulum must swing if you are someone that fully immerses into projects or you know whatever facet of your life you have to go the other way you have to go the other way for yourself, for the relationships with the other people in your life and for the next thing that's coming, whatever mm. that may be. I have learnt to sit in not needing to know what the next thing is. In fact, when I have the space, the next thing that comes is something that actually is more meaningful and it's based on want and desire as opposed to pressure and delivering other people's expectations or your own. Such a good answer. That was such a selfish question. It was literally just because I wanted to know. Mm. I wanted her to remind me in her infinite wisdom. <laughs> yeah. So second last question is three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in speaking gigs or podcasts or conversations. Um, I went to a Tony Robbins um, seminar, UPW, last year and we had to write down like one of the biggest fears that we had and one of the biggest fears – I had was that I would never think that I was successful enough to be able to delegate. <laughs> it was terrible. It was, I know it was funny because like everyone was saying, oh, I don't think I'm good enough or worthy. And I was like, I don't think I'm good enough to delegate. Yeah. But, you know, if you, <laughs> so play, if you play out anything till its nth degree, what is, what's the negatives of that? That I'll always do everything myself, that I'll never spend time with my family, mm. that I won't have a close, you know, there's a lot mm. of negatives of not releasing um, responsibility to other people. Mm. So um, out of that, once I really realised that was an issue for me, Mark and I got an EA um, and we're still working out how we really let go of everything but it's been so releasing to just like trust over like give my credit card details my passport details get my flight sorted and just trust that someone else has my interests in an in an area of my life Mm. so you know that was one thing that's great Mm. amazing I'm so proud of you (laughs) no it was huge like even you know um getting a cleaner um, getting our groceries ordered online mm. um, now we're in a really high workflow so we want to order um, you know online meals three times not um, like you know a Marley spoon or mm, like mm. I haven't done this yet but this I've got to do this week I want to order three meals a week so we don't have to cook so we can train and just get a meal and put it together as mm. opposed to have to spend too much time on it um, I'm trying to outsource some areas to allow us to spend more time as a family unit so good. And yeah. it's like just a priorities thing, I think. It's mm. doing the things that make you 
able to prioritize the things that are your priorities. Yep. Um, I mean, what I'm just trying to think. I've got one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> it's a story and it almost came up before and it's just a cute, funny story that um, <laughs> I love Nick and Sam's relationship. Obviously, mm. Samantha and I met first and then <laughs> Samantha met Nick because you were around at the very beginning. You were the very first person to know because we were chatting online and I went, the first time I went to Nick's house, I went straight from Samantha's house in the middle of a practice exam. I was like, I've got to go. There's this boy. Oh my God. <laughs> so she's been there from the very beginning, all the ups and downs, but they've through lots of expeditions, developed their own beautiful friendship and relationship. And one of the ones that just makes me laugh so much every time when I knew how close they were and just that like, I, you know, they've got it. They've got their system going. Oh gosh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so at different stages on different expeditions, we all go through different parts with Sam. And one of the reasons why I think her expeditions have been so transformative for me is that she always separates Nick and I, which is great because you need us for different things. Mm. And that you've also taught me a lot about team building in terms of just who you should have around you in life in general. You need us for different things. It doesn't work to have us together. So we were like, cool, we're going on this trip to India. Didn't see each other at all because we were on separate shifts. Fine. Um, and after one of the shifts I had done, you know, my we were talking before about the longest distance I've ever run was 30 Ks in a row at a shuffle pace. It wasn't fast, but I couldn't stop because Sam had done 400 Ks and I was like, well, I'm not stopping. And then I'd had a sleep while Nick had taken over the night shift. And <laughs> he's like, um, so Sam had an aunt on her vagina and um, she told me about it and we were running and she was just like, oh, well, something's a bit, something feels funny. <laughs> and he was like, just running along like, okay, I'm chill. I'm chill with this. Like he hasn't had to deal with too many, you know, fe- feminine issues. He's like, what could this be? Like, you're like, oh no, I'm really itchy. I'm really itchy. And then what happened? You pulled an ant out of your uh, pants. Well, yeah, well. I'd gone, I'd squat, squatted down. Oh, to go, yeah, I right. squatted down to go to the tour. And I did that right next to, so this is actually in The Simpsons. Yeah, that's right. And it was pitch black. And I um, I actually think I was holding on to Nick's calves because I couldn't even squat down to go to the toilet. <laughs> Far out. I'm so happy it was dark. But anyway, and Nick's just like silent as I'm just doing this. I'm like, I don't, I'm like, don't walk away from me. Um, but ding- don't turn around. But don't turn either. around. I'm like, there's dingoes. <laughs> and then I got back up and I was still something, something a little bit itchy. And... I just put my fingers around the area of itch and <laughs> extracted a ant. And of course, I shared everything. You, you, I have no filter on these projects. Yeah, like, no. there's no you. You don't have space for it. Like, the human body isn't this sexual thing. It's like this vehicle to do these things that you're trying to do. So. I I told Nick about it and, yes, he, he was a bit quiet. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, cool, man. Cool, man. Um, he, I think he spent like another five hours just like, <gasps> what do I do? <laughs> but he's learned that now. Like, yeah, Nick's, cool you know, that's – um. India, he was prepared then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, I did love when um, Nick came out to India with me because – yeah, he's obviously this great um, athletic prowess over the short distance. You know, ask him and he'll tell you that he was a um, champion <laughs> <I> hurdler. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, long story short, uh, I always struggle to keep up with Nick on short distances. And so when Nick came out to India, I was actually quite acclimatised to how brutal the heat was. And anytime someone came out in the middle of the run, they'd be like, oh, God, it's so hot. <laughs> and I was just on a really great path 
part of my physical journey when Nick came out and I was just You were so fast. So fast. I was doing like we, we were doing anywhere up to seventy four Ks a day. Mm. And I was running sometimes like five minute K pace and, and feeling <laughs> really great about it. And I remember just like one point Nick stuck with me for fifteen Ks and Yes, I knew I was going fast and I probably should slow down, but I also saw Nick hurting and I just wanted to keep him feeling <laughs> that. <laughs> and like, so cool. And there's this incredible video of Nick in the camper van, like gasping for breath. And I'm like, okay, Nick, I've got to keep going for another 20K now. <laughs> and it was just sometimes it's great when the small shuffling, you know, non-athletic girl can just smash Mm. You're the hurdler. The underdog. <laughs> <laughs> Let the underdog rise. <laughs> and the very last question, since I love quotes so much, what's your favourite motivational quote? Oh, well, I'm going to go back to what I already said because I think it's so relevant. I just think um, if you want something that you've never had, you have to do something that you've never done. Be willing to shake things up. Put yourself into situations of uncertainty. Be bold and brave enough and know that it might not always turn out how you expected and that is okay. I am so eternally grateful that you taught me that very early on in my life when I was not on a path that that ever would have come out on otherwise. And, you know, people always ask me, you know, how do you get out of your comfort zone and drop the self-doubt and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Samantha Gash. That's my answer. (laughs) The feeling is very, very mutual. So proud of you. I'm so excited that we're each other's bridesmaids. Can't wait for the next (laughs) phase of the journey. We actually have a lot of work to do on both of our weddings. (laughs) Whoops. (laughs) So that doesn't cover even half of the ball of energy that is Samantha Gash, but I do hope you got as much out of her as I always do nonetheless. I feel so very lucky to have her as a dear friend and as a mutual bridesmaid-to-be. So excited for both of our weddings this year. As always, please do share if you're listening and tag at Samantha Gash and the CZA page or myself to let us know what you learned or what you thought or any reflections. It really means so much to my guests and I to know that you're enjoying the show. And I've also started doing a few surprise giveaways too for the best shares. Was thinking of doing a little live Q&A with Samantha and Mark later in the week as well to follow up on their two episodes. So if you're interested in that, please let me know. I think it's always amazing to extend the interaction as much as possible. So let me know via DM or email or whatever method you prefer. There's so much more in the pipeline too. I wish there were 10 of me to push out all the ideas I've got whirling around in my head for you all. In the meantime, we are about 10 weeks out from our wedding, so we're getting very excited now. We're balls deep in Wedmin, but loving every minute of it. And if you have been tuned in on socials, you will have seen a surprise guest who is so, so exciting to have on the show, even though I say it every time. I know you're probably getting sick of it, but I genuinely get so excited about every guest. And next week's is one that I just never, ever imagined I would be able to sit down and chat with, but it was one of the best experiences of my life. Gary Vaynerchuk or Gary V, the entrepreneur of entrepreneurs, is coming on the show for next week's episode. So make sure you're subscribed to get the episode as soon as it drops. It is a short one. It's express because obviously his time is very precious, but it is a zinger. I cannot, cannot wait to share. So hope you're having an amazing day. Stay tuned and I hope that you're seizing your yay.